Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. We are continuing in our series through the book of Genesis, and this morning we will be looking at all of chapter 8 through chapter 9, verse 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can read along with me, or feel free to uh, read the text on the screen above me. Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The foundations of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. In the seventh month of the seventeenth day of that month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro from the waters, were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove had found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him on the ark for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth another dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, in the first day of that month, the waters were dried off from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. 
for your lifeblood will be required a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. And and from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply on it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you and as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. For I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and of all flesh that is on the earth. May God bless the preaching of his word. Our passage this morning gives us a wonderful, and I think a refreshing picture of God's heart for us. And it's particularly refreshing to us as we come off of last week in chapter 7, which was primarily telling of God's wrath against sin and the destruction of the flood. And while we we certainly saw glimpses of God's mercy, in our section this morning, we really see a shift in the narrative of the flood to one that focuses now on the great love that God has for his people. And and here's the, the main idea that I think that this section is speaking to. And that is that God is a God of great mercy. And that his heart is for the good of his people. And we're going to walk through these verses and unpack this main idea by by breaking it down into three sections. First, we see the flood subsides. Second, we see creation is restored. And third, a covenant is made. And my prayer for our time this morning is that God will help us to, in a, in a fresh way, see his love and his mercy, and that we will be strengthened this morning by his word. So first, the flood subsides. Chapter 8 begins with this wonderful statement, but God remembered Noah. I think that most of us, when we, when we think back to, uh, to times when we, were, when we were little kids, we have, we have memories burn into our minds of, of a moment when we might have been out with our parents or our mom and our dad, and we, and we turn around and we find that they are not to be seen anywhere, right? These are terrifying moments as a kid, right? 
It, like, like I was out with my mom and, 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 I, and we're shopping and I turn my left to see her and ask her a question and I don't see her anywhere. And, and in moments like this, as a kid, your mind goes to like, I have been abandoned. I'm in a sea of strangers. All hope is lost. My, my young life is coming to an end. That's like the scariest thing that can happen to you as a kid, right? Of course, in, in my case, my mom was just having to be off to my right, like five feet away, putting cereal into the shopping cart, you know, and that was like the most wonderful discovery for me that I'd ever seen, right? And I, I think all of us have moments that we can remember like this. And it's in that moment when you realize that you aren't lost, that you haven't been abandoned, and you're scooped up into your mom or your dad's arms, and those are the most reassuring moments in life, Right? And I imagine that where we are right here in Genesis, I imagine that Noah and his family are probably feeling some of this fear and anxiety of a little kid wondering if they have been forgotten. Think with me now about the situation that Noah and his family are in. A flood has just wiped out the only world that they have ever known. And by the grace of God, they have been, they've been saved by this ark. But for 150 days, they have been floating in the waters of God's judgment with no sign of it coming to an end. Noah and his family are living through the greatest disaster and the most dramatic display of God's wrath that the world has ever seen. And they're being kept alive by a boat floating on a flood that just wiped out everything. The people they knew, the only life they ever knew, wiped out. And the, the trauma of this event, I'm sure, is quite real for this family, right? And, and, and it's still going on. For five months, they have been in this ark. And we know that, that Noah was a man who trusted in God. But I imagine that for Noah and his family, their faith is being tested in this moment. Are the waters ever going to subside? Are they going to run out of food? Are they going to die on this ark? Have they been forgotten by God? And for us this morning, though none of us are are facing a a literal flood, we can still, too, wrestle with fears like these in our own circumstances. We can still sometimes feel like little kids wondering if we have been left alone and are lost you know, perhaps this, this morning you, you are a college student who is, who is barely keeping your head above water in this crazy semester. Perhaps you are a family who is, who is drowning in the stress of this season. Perhaps you're in a time of, of questioning your own faith. Or, or perhaps, and probably even more applicable to this text, you feel as if maybe you are drowning under the weight of your own sin and the mistakes that you have made in your life, and, and you're wondering where God is, wondering whether he is still with you, wondering whether he is still for you. And now as we look at the story of Noah, and we see the trauma and the helplessness of their situation, and we find that we can relate to that to some degree, we now see the beauty of this opening statement in chapter 8, but God remembered Noah. Now, when it says that God remembered Noah, it does not mean that God had forgotten about them. God was not far off concerning himself with something else during these events. Noah and his family had not somehow slipped 
God's mind. No, in fact, the opposite is true. When when it says in verse 1 that God remembered Noah, it means that God was actively planning to keep his promises to them. Alan Ross, in in a commentary on Genesis, uh, examines the use of the word remember throughout Scripture, and he says this, God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object. The essence of God's remembering lies in his acting towards someone because of a previous commitment. To say that God remembered Noah is to say that God faithfully kept his promise to Noah by intervening to end the flood. God is a faithful God. He had promised to preserve Noah and his family. And Noah, in faith, had followed God into this ark. And and while the danger remained and the months dragged on, God had not forgotten. In fact, he was actively preserving Noah. He was sovereignly carrying out his plan to deliver them and to establish a new life for them. And he is mighty to carry out this plan. And we see this at the end of verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So God has been active, right, in sending this judgment of the flood. It was his doing. The, The face of the earth is covered by the water by God's command. But... God remembered Noah, and now we see God's activity to deliver them. And to now, by the command of God, the waters begin to subside. God's wrath is receding, and his grace and his purposes are now being poured out. And and in the midst of the storms of our own lives, whether they are the result of our own sin or the result of the the fallen world around us, our hope is the same as Noah's. And that is that God is mighty and that he is merciful. He is mighty to sustain you through the storms that you are walking through. He is merciful to restore the brokenness that results from the fallen world around us. So church, whatever you are walking through this week, God is merciful and his heart is for your good. This section in chapter 8 concludes with God forcing back the waters, returning Noah and his family to dry ground where, where he provides them this hope of a fresh beginning. And this leads us to point number two. Creation is restored. As we move on here to chapter 9, we we see God establishing a fresh start for Noah and his family. In verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, it's because it's the same command that God had given to Adam and Eve back in the garden where his desire was for humanity to thrive and to multiply and to fill the earth with his image. But as we know, humanity did not get off to a strong start here, right? Humanity rebelled hard against God and chaos ensued. However, in all these events that have been transpiring through these recent chapters, God's plan for humanity is not being derailed. God is committed to his people. 
God is committed to his purposes for humanity. And in chapter 9, we see a loud declaration that God is not willing to relent to his purposes to be merciful to his people and to carry out his good plan for their lives. And we see that God's heart in this passage is, is really the heart that we are going to see throughout all of Scripture. The Bible is a history of God blessing his people, of wonderfully providing for them. Yes, God's people sin, they turn away from him, and chaos ensues, and God brings judgment, which he is right to do. But what always prevails is his heart of mercy towards his people. And this pattern of mercy in God's heart for the good of his people is what marks these two chapters here this morning. And here in chapter 9, as God gives humanity a fresh start, we see specific ways that God is going to provide for his people. Because remember, God knows humanity's tendency to self-destruct. He knows that man's heart is evil from youth, as it says in, in, in chapter 8. And, and so he knows that chaos is going to naturally reign in humanity. So God makes a covenant with Noah and a promise of protection. Because he knows that if this world is to be successful, they are going to need help. And so we see two ways that God is going to show mercy to humanity. First, we see that God is providing humanity protection from creation. And second, we see that God is providing humanity protection from his future wrath. First, God provides protection against creation. And read with me again the first five verses of chapter 9. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Now, there are lots of interesting things that, about this verse that I could get into. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to get everything. But the main point here is that God is fully committed to restoring his creation and putting into place measures to ensure that his people are protected and that they are valued as God values them. And, and one of these measures that God puts into place is to reinforce the dominion that humanity has over creation, and, and particularly the animal kingdom. Noah and his family are, are given the right to, um, to subdue the animal kingdom, to, to utilize it for their well-being, to, to even now use animals for food. And, and then the, the fear of man is also said to be put into all animals, as it says there in verse 1. And it seems that this is a, a protective measure for humanity. Um, and uh, who, who and particularly for Noah and his family, who find themselves quite in a, in a vulnerable situation here. You know, it, it might have been a very different story for humanity if the animal kingdom was left unrestrained to prey on humans for food. You know, we, we probably take this for granted, probably kind of in the, in the culture that we live in, but, but think about how crazy life would be, even in our own day, if animals had no fear of us. 
We, we are way outnumbered, right? There's no way that humanity would have survived this long. You know, I don't know if any of you have seen the that old Alfred Hitchcock movie, Birds. But I imagine that's just what like, life would look like in all, with like, all animals, right? Like you, you take out your trash every night. You're just like mauled by raccoons like, every night, right? Like, it, would be, it would be crazy. This, again, this is something that we probably don't think a whole lot about. But it really is God's graciousness that he has instilled into animals the fear of humans. It was done for the protection of a vulnerable people that God loves. But then further into the text, we we get more really to the the heart of this matter. In verse 6, God makes one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture regarding the value that he places on human life. And he makes this decree in verse 6. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now again, there is, there is so much that can be said about this text in regards to ethics or, or the justice system. And this verse has been used both to defend and object to capital punishment. It's been used in the abortion debate. It's been, it's been used to, to defend pacifism during wartime. And, and these, are, these are good conversations. And of course, it's important to take this, this one verse in, in the context of all of the, the teaching of scriptures. But, but for our purposes here this morning, here's the thing that I want us to take away from this verse. Human life is incredibly valuable to God. There is nothing in this world that God sees as having more value and more dignity and more purpose than your life. It is a powerful statement to say that nothing else can make up for a human life than another human life. Meaning no amount of wealth, not a lifetime prison sentence, not, not anything. Meaning to God, you are of infinite value. And our value comes from the fact that we are made in the image of God himself. And this is something that we have, we have spoken to many times throughout these past couple of months. And, and how there is nothing that reflects God the way that we do, right? Not animals, not heavens, not, not the most beautiful things in all of creation. Only humans are made in the image of God, which is why you and I are valued by God and, and why we are to be treated with great dignity and why we are to treat others with that same dignity. And if you, if you look at, at secular worldviews, you, you really see them struggling to come up with a, a real kind of cohesive argument for, for ethics or for social justice and for, for why we should treat one another the way that we should. But as Christians, we don't have this difficulty. We might have difficulty of living that out, right? But, but we are told that we are made in the image of God. And this is the basis for how we are to relate to one another. And, and not just in regards to the, the big ethical questions of life, like abortion or capital punishment or wars, but also in rather or not, we treat one another every day as people who are loved and valued by God above all things. And it's, it's probably not a, a big question into our minds as to whether or not we should murder one another. Like, like 
Hopefully we've got that one, right? But, but the infinite value and dignity that God has given each one of us should powerfully affect the way that we relate to one another in all areas of life. Unfortunately, though, our, our tendency is to value one another based off of a very different standard than God's, right? We tend to value and respect one another based off of personality traits or, or shared political views or, or outward beauty or how intelligent or popular or, or rich somebody is. And then, we, and then we tend to devalue people um, that we don't like or that we don't agree with or, or perhaps that we, we don't see as having as much to offer us as other people do. But as Christians, our value system must be different than this. We are accountable before God to relate to every person around us as those who are made in the image of God and carry with that image incredible value. I don't know if any of you have, have seen any of those uh, old kind of antique roadshow um, shows on TV where these appraisers come to town and, and people bring all these boxes of, of junk to be appraised, hoping that something in there will be of, of great value, right? And so these, these appraisers come and these boxes are brought and, and usually just confirm that everything is, in fact, just junk, right? But, but every once in a while, something will be found to really be of incredible value, right? Like someone will, will have had this, this old hairbrush that's been like in a box in their attic for all these years, and they're just assuming that's all it is, just this whole hairbrush, right? But the appraiser will say, you know what, actually this hairbrush would have belonged to, to royalty like back in the 13th century, and it's, it's worth $750,000. Now with this new information, it kind of radically changes the way that you would treat that hairbrush, right? Like you don't, you don't throw it into your glove compartment on the way back home now, right? Like you find the most secure, safest box to have. You protect, you protect it. You treat it with respect because now you realize how valuable it is, right? And church, this is, this is how it ought to be with us, right? Not necessarily that we are all old hairbrushes, but, but, but we must be a people who see in those around us others who are valued by God himself, who belong to the king, who are made in his image and are loved by God above anything else in this world. And this is why we must be a people who care more than anyone else about human dignity and about social justice, and for seeking the good of the poor and the marginalized who, who show no partiality to one another. Instead, we must be a people who treat one another with kindness, with generosity. You know, we cannot be a people who, who mock and tear one another down on social media. We can't gossip about our co-workers. We can't harbor anger in our hearts towards our brothers and our sisters. And in fact, Jesus says in the, in the New Testament to, to hate someone, to, to harbor anger towards someone is the same as if you have murdered that person. It's serious. We cannot talk down to our spouses. We can't take advantage of one another. We can't curse at that person in front of us who's slowing down traffic. We, we can't lie to one another because to do this is to disrespect the very image of God himself. And God is committed to the protection and the just treatment of all people. 
Because human life, your life, your neighbor's life is of infinite value to God. Now, we might pause here and think that this might seem actually kind of strange seeing as how God just wiped out almost all of humanity, right? But quite honestly, this speaks not only to the great seriousness of sin, but also to the great sorrow that God must have felt to destroy so much of his own image that he loved so much. As we move now towards our last point, which, which I think is our, by far the most important point this morning, we see the great love and mercy that God has as he makes a promise to provide protection against his future wrath and judgment. And so point three, a covenant is made. In Genesis 8, 8 through 13, it says, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So God has given humanity a fresh start. And as a sign of his mercy and his desire to be good to his people, God makes a covenant with Noah. And a covenant is a, is a promise or, or an agreement that God makes with his people, always with the purposes to bless them that he enters into a covenant with. As you make your way through Scripture, you are going to see many of these covenants. And you're going to see that, that God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And, and in this covenant with Noah, God promises to, to demonstrate restraint when it comes to his judgment against the world. He says, never again will I destroy the world with a flood. And, and this is important because in the coming chapters, we are going to see mankind immediately turn back to sin which is crazy because the whole world was just wiped out by a flood. But again, humanity rebels against God. And so they will deserve another flood. But God in his mercy has made a covenant with humanity, a promise that, that he will not break no matter how greatly the world turns against him. And as a sign of this covenant, God places a rainbow in the clouds. Now, rainbows are something that, that we love to look at, right? There's, there's nothing like a big, bright rainbow that makes people pull out their phones or, or run out to their front yards to, to get a full look at it, right? You know, we love rainbows, but, but they are much more than just a, a beautiful decoration in the skies. The reason rainbows exist is because God has produced this phenomenon in nature after a storm, to remind us that God is a God of great mercy and that his heart is for the good of his people. And it's really quite fascinating what God says here. 
When God said in verse 13 that I've set my bow in the cloud, it's a rainbow that he's talking about, but the word in the original language in the Hebrew is not rainbow. The word is bow of war. Meaning a, a bow that shoots arrows in battle. God is referring to an instrument of war in this passage. So, so think about this with me. While rainbows are beautiful, a rainbow is designed by God to be in the shape of a weapon. After this flood, after this incredible display of God's wrath and justice, God places an instrument of war into the sky for Noah and his family to see. But here's the thing about rainbows. Think about how they're shaped. Think about how a bow is shaped. And a rainbow points upward. It faces away from the earth. If you were to put a bow, an arrow into that bow, it would shoot upward towards the heavens. And this is not a, a, a clever thing I'm kind of coming up with to make a sermon point here. Like This is what the text is saying. The purpose of rainbows is God is saying, in my mercy... I am turning my judgment away from you. I'm entering into a covenant with you that you will not have to fear that I will wipe out the earth like I did before, but instead I offer mercy. And ultimately, church, this covenant is a foretaste of an even greater covenant that God will make with his son. That rainbow in the sky that, that instrument of war that is pointed away from the earth and pointed towards the heavens was a foreshadow of the day when God would direct his wrath away from us and towards his son as he laid his life down for us on a cross. This rainbow, this covenant is a loud declaration and a loud statement about God's great mercy and it is filled with gospel hope. Friends, you might be here this morning feeling the weight of your sin and realizing that you don't deserve God's mercy. And then you, then you look at these last chapters that we have been in that talk about God's great wrath and his judgment towards sin and this great destruction that he has brought on the world. And you might be feeling the weight of all that and the weight of your sin. You know, Maybe you have lived for years with unrepentant sin. Maybe just yesterday you, you screamed at your spouse in anger. Maybe this week you struggled with lust or pornography or, or guilt over past adultery. Or maybe you just look at your life and you just, you just feel shame. And you know that you are not worthy of God's mercy. You know that you are deserving of his judgment. And all of this is true. right? God flooded the earth because of the sin of you and the sin of me. But friends, the great hope of this passage and, and the greater hope of the gospel is that in Christ, God has laid down his bow and has pointed it towards himself so that there's no more wrath, there's no more anger for you, there's no condemnation for those who are now in Christ. And the reason that this is true is because all that condemnation was directed away from us and was directed towards Christ. His body on the cross, his blood that was shed washed away all your guilt, all your shame, all your judgment. 
and the God of mercy and grace who loves you more than anything else has entered into an even greater covenant with you that he will not break. This passage is meant to give us confidence to come before God. But this confidence only comes through faith in Christ. And so if you are here this morning and you have not put your hope in Christ, then this promise is not yet for you. And while there may not be a literal flood coming, ultimately the bow of God's wrath is still pointed towards you. And so I would implore you to, in this morning, put your faith in Christ and receive his grace and his forgiveness and the peace that comes only through knowing him. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, the encouragement this morning is to not live as if somehow God might pick that bow back up and point it towards you again. Don't live as if, as if you confess your sins to God or to each other, that somehow God's wrath might just come crashing back down on you. Don't live as if somehow you are outside of the ark now, still drowning in the, the flood of God's wrath. No, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And notice that God's word does not say that there is some condemnation or that there is occasional condemnation, or that there is a a watered-down version of condemnation. No, there is now no condemnation. The flood of God's wrath has been removed by the blood of His Son. And all your guilt and shame has been washed away. Which means that we can confess our sins freely, knowing that we are forgiven. We can come and worship God boldly knowing that he delights in us. We can hope in God confidently knowing that he is willing and able to deliver us from the storms of this life. Because our God is a God of great mercy and his love and his heart is for the good of his people.